profoundly deaf means that you've still got some residual hearing. So for me, I can hear a lot of impacts of sound. What I don't get through the ear is the resonance. It is simply a piece of music that we're all on this journey, including the audience. So we as players are one aspect of that. I think that the sense of curiosity, I keep saying that, is so incredibly important. We know that whatever profession or whatever you are learning at that time, whether you're eight years old, 28 or 88, there's going to be hard work there. That has to just be an accepted thing. But what is important, I feel, is finding a way to bring improvisation and thinking outside of the box a little bit. So when we're asked to practice our scales, what are we trying to do? Hey guys, I've got a quick request. Could you subscribe, like and comment if you like the content we're making? It's really important to support the channel and carry on having great guests like we've had. So subscribe, like, comment. Very important. Thank you. Thank you very much, Evelyn. Uh, can I ask you to introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced? My name is Evelyn Glennie and I'm a musician who specialises in solo percussion. Um, I'm also the founder of the Evelyn Glennie Foundation and the curator of the Evelyn Glennie Collection. Great. And we are in your room with your collection. Uh, it reminds me my uh, percussion class or department where it was full, full of instruments that were owned by probably a two-third were owned by the, the teacher. Wow. Uh, and when he went out, because um, unfortunately his wife uh, was very ill, um, he went with all his instruments and it was completely empty. Incredible. Uh, but yeah, yeah. it was it, it's great. There's so many different instruments. I'll try to take some pictures or shots of it. Yes, I mean, this is only part of the collection because the collection also incorporates things like the music scores. Um, so often when I've commissioned pieces, you might have the first draft of a mm -hmm. score, second draft and so on. And it's really interesting to see how a composer has gone on that journey and develops yeah. the piece. Um, the collection also consists of clothing and recordings and interviews and press cuttings and, and just all sorts of things. So really the instruments, which is obviously the, the most obvious thing that you see, yeah. um, is really only one part of the collection. Obviously, well, it's a, it's a big privilege for me to be here and thank you very much for accepting the, the recordings. Um, obviously, you did so many interviews and so many podcasts as well, so I'd, I'm trying to think about a different angle but um, I'm very interested in psychology and education so maybe we'll take that um, that angle and you have uh, a very strong personality but uh, and very driven but very kind as well and you've taken a very different angle in your in your life and you didn't accept what people were telling you uh, were qualifying you um, where does that come from? I understand some part of it comes from childhood, your relationship with your parents, uh, brothers and sisters, friends. Do, do you know uh, where that confidence comes from and that determination? No, not really. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I think what I am very grateful for is having the upbringing I had. I was brought mm -hmm. up on a farm in the northeast of Scotland with yeah. my 
parents and two brothers. And of course, in that environment, you're given a lot of responsibilities at a very young age. Yes. So you're also surrounded by things whereby you have to be conscious of them. So livestock, mm -hmm. machinery, that type of thing. So as a kid, those are big things. Um, but ultimately, there's an awful lot of trust that goes with that. So when your parents ask you to do something, uh, whether it's feeding the cattle or moving cattle from one field to another field, and you've got to hold the traffic on a main road mm -hmm. and the cattle cross that road or something, um, that's a responsibility. Yeah. Um, or feeding sick lambs or, or whatever it might be. Um, or using a machine to slice turnips and so on. I mean, I remember all of those things. And um, so really there's a, a great potential for things to go wrong, actually. Um, but I, I think that instilled a sense of responsibility and, and trust. And also when you're asked to do something, you do it. So you can't procrastinate in that kind of environment. Yeah. And, um, and so whether that had anything to do, you know, with, with um, the kind of, I suppose, single-mindedness moving forward and the idea of uh, making an aim really simple in your mind. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, when I decided to go in for music, the aim was simple. I want to be a solo percussionist. So, solo percussionist was simply tattooed on my forehead. Yeah. Um, that was in my mind. So, of course, how do you get there? You know, what do you do? That is the, the, where the hard work comes in. So if you think of a snooker player, for example, they're not concentrating on getting the ball into the hole. They're making sure that everything else is functioning well in order for the ball to get into that hole. Yeah. So um, that was what it was like for me. So solo percussion was already in my mind. But how do I get there? What do I do? What do I need to prepare? You know, how do I organize for this? What, what, what should I be doing? And that's where really the kind of organization in your own mind has to take place. And it can just be almost like a massive ele elephant. You know, you don't know where to start, what to do and all of that. Yeah. But I'm a big believer in everything starts with one step or one little brick, you know, mm -hmm. one little thing, and from that, another thing emerges. Yeah. So I think this has had a huge part on the kind of longevity of my career, because that's what I've wanted, you know, to, to the aim to sustain a career as a musician. And, um, and with that comes curiosity. So I think the whole idea when you create something from scratch really is that there has to be this innate sense of curiosity mm -hmm. um, and the willingness to accept things when they don't go your way yeah um, there's a lot of that and that will continue for as long as you breathe <laughs> how were your parents with you at that and when you were uh, aids around AIDS, when you started to lose um, your hearing um, how did they take it and how did you take it as well I'm interested because there's um, we've got friends whose little girl has got um, like some hearing deficiencies in just one ear, and the the mum was very positive, and she said it's good that you you need to explain it to your whole class and say it's normal. There's a, a disability 
for everybody. This is my hearing aid. This is why I've got it. It's cool because it's a cool color. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very positive and she's going to own it and she's gonna do, not going to be shy about it. Um, but the, and the dad had a different approach, like he was feeling sorry for her. He was fearing that she might get bullied. And, you know, it's really interesting because it's those two aspects where there's nothing right or wrong. Uh, and I guess those two feelings come to, to you at some different times. But yes, there's the feeling that if you've got a disability or if you've got something different uh, than your peers, then you're, you may be bullied because you don't fit in correctly. Uh, but on the other hand, you really need to own it. And the best way to do it is to explain people and to be close to them and open about your your characteristics so mm-hmm. how did you approach it um because I'm, I'm well i've got your i bought your book called uh well it's not your book but the book about your story uh, called listen mm-hmm. and i got it for my daughter mm-hmm. um and there's one section that says that when you started to lose your hearing then your dad said she's not going to go to a specialist school she's just going to stay in her school mm-hmm because she can do everything or the rest yeah. right yeah. so why does she be need to be in a box yeah. um so yeah how, how did you feel about it absolutely well i think from my parents perspective um they were pretty grounded of course you know they went through that um journey of concern and, mm-hmm. and uh they didn't know what the future might be um and of course in those days you know things were quite um matter of fact and yeah. how things how the message was put across so um we didn't have obviously this was the days before internet and things like that so you couldn't have role models in quite the same way that you can access nowadays mm-hmm. um but i think importantly um i went to a tiny tiny country primary school that only had 37 pupils in the in the entire school okay so the the two teachers who were there knew every single pupil and um knew practically every aspect of that pupil and knew the families as well. So it was a tiny um, school just in the farming community. It wasn't even in a village. It was just on a hill, isolated. And um, so the relationship that is built really between uh, teachers and families in those days is quite different to how it is now. Um, So that was important. So you could actually talk about things. Um, but also I think the mindset of the general mindset of people in the northeast of Scotland is not to make a mountain out of a, a, a molehill. So they're quite kind of practical people and don't want to make a big issue mm-hmm. over something. And, and they, you know, even now sometimes when I go back, you know, they're not sort of seeing somebody as like, oh, wow, you know, um, you're doing this or doing that or something. It's just, oh, hello. And and you're, you're very much integrated mm-hmm. with how people are there. And I really like that, you know, yeah. and I appreciate that. And I think that was kind of the mindset in that, you know, you are doing what you're doing now and you will continue to do that for as long as you're enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And And that was the key thing is making sure that I was happy, you know, that I was kind of improving, happy, just being a kind of normal kid in yep. a way. Um, my two brothers were my two brothers, you know what I mean? And, and uh, sometimes they were really helpful and then other times they were quite, you know, nasty and they would cover their faces or their mouths or talk yeah. in the dark or something. Typical brothers, uh, but lovely. 
And um, but when I went to a bigger primary, uh, a bigger secondary school mm -hmm. that had over a thousand pupils, um, again the school was incredibly supportive, and they had very good peripatetic teachers come in. So, okay. for example, myself and another boy um, who had a hearing impairment uh, had a peripatetic teacher for the deaf who came in to make sure that we were coping in our lessons, that we um, had, you know, we knew what homework we needed to do, just anything extra um, that needed to happen. And that was fantastic. Um, but it was the kind of school that uh, opened its doors to every single pupil of the school. Mm -hmm. So if somebody happened to be in a wheelchair, the sporting department was open to them. Yeah. You know, so they could be a sports person if they wanted. If somebody was sight impaired, they could belong to the art department. If somebody was hearing impaired, they could belong to the music department. So and that mindset rubs off in the whole school, you know, within staff and pupils. And so the belief that every child has something within themselves that makes them interesting, that yeah. makes them tick, that makes them wow, you know, what's that about? That makes them curious. Um, it's up to the school to find that thing and then as far as possible to nourish that, you know, so it isn't always just about ticking the A's and the B's and the C's in an exam or something. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's much more about getting into that person and, and, you know, really finding out what it is that's so special about that. Yeah. And um, so I think I was very, very, very lucky with my education um, and just having all the opportunities. Did you know from the start that you wanted to be a musician, professional musician? Or it I, just came with time? Yes, it, it really, um, it, it came along pretty naturally as regards to making that decision. So when I reached the age of 15, um, whereby I was deciding which subjects to carry on with at school, Um, I just thought to myself then that music is playing a big part in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Um, and I will give music a go. Yeah. Um, so what I was very conscious of was that, um, you know, there's quite a big difference between doing music in between a whole load of other subjects at school to then suddenly only doing music and how might that change my feeling. So... Uh, nevertheless, I decided that this would be the thing I would try uh, on the condition I would follow solo percussion. So it was really clear in my mind and I was prepared to do something else if that did not happen. So um, it wasn't just the be all and end all and, and it would be disastrous if it didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, But nevertheless, that's what I wanted to do. And so I then just only auditioned for two places, the Royal College and Royal Academy of Music, both in London, only for experience, because I had no idea what sort of level I was in a national sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I needed to to have that kind of experience and, and to, to get some sort of gauge in my mind as to whether I'd even, you know, have, have any kind of chance. Sorry, what sort of test were you... Did you need to take to to get you to know, audition? Yeah, to audition because I, I, well, I kind of heard about it in another podcast that you did, especially with Carol Jarvis, um, and it seemed to be pretty pretty hard. So you must have had a really good level to just take the tests or the audition. 
Um, yes, the, 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 a normal in those days, of course, it yeah. may be different now, um, but the normal edition was that you had to prepare X amount of excerpts on your principal instrument, in my case, percussion, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then to uh, you had to play a second instrument. So again, piano was was that okay. was my instrument. So I think I played a Mozart sonata or something, and um, and then things like the, the the usual things such as sight reading and um, transposition and looking at a score and deciding who might have played who might have composed that and and that type of thing score reading so just generally and then you had to do a paper exam mm-hmm. uh, uh, usually on the same day as a practical and then you you'd have a letter to say whether you got in or not um, simple as that. Um, of course, with the academy, um, I had to do the the, um, the 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 full edition, and they did not accept me on the basis that they didn't feel it was going to be possible for an orchestra to accept a hearing impaired musician. It was just their feeling. Yeah, it, it's it's. It was something that um, I felt, well, I just need an answer as to whether the audition was okay or not okay. Um, because if it wasn't of the standard, then okay, I could either, you know, just wait a year, practice harder, prepare better, whatever. Um, but if it was okay and I still wasn't getting in, then where do I go from there? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so once I knew the reason for not accepting me, I find that very difficult to take uh, because you can't predict, A, what other organisations are going to do or yeah. not do. And, and then you can't, you know, just say, well, just because you're deaf or blind or you've got one leg, one arm or whatever, you know, somebody else isn't going to accept you. That's very dangerous, dodgy ground to, mm-hmm. to get into. So I felt that I had a point just to say, if I saw the standard to get in, I should be accepted. Yeah. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have too many people that and, and not enough spaces, then I get that. You know, I understand that. Um, but if the reason is based on my hearing, I'm not going to accept that. So That's they, pretty strong, you know, to, to say this. Well, how old were you at that time? I were was you, 16 when 16? I auditioned. Um, yeah, I, would, I don't think I would have said it if I would have just taken it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, that's just how I felt and I yeah. felt very strongly about that. And I think possibly, you know, again, the school environment was was that, well, you know, everybody can do something mm. here, you know, and it's listening to that person. And of course, you know, an audition doesn't always have to pick the best players. Yeah. Um, they, they have to see through that player and mm-hmm. what is it that they feel that, you know, is there something in that individual that they think, hmm, I can sense that they want to improve or I can sense that they're dedicated or, you know, I can sense that they might get on with other people or I can sense that they've got a name, that kind of thing. In a way, I had all of those things, to be honest. Um, and I very clear vision. But part of the issue also was that because I said I wanted to be a solo percussionist and not in an orchestra, this was something that in those days, in the early 80s, had not really existed before. So the image of seeing somebody give a percussion recital or stand up in front of an orchestra to play percussion was not something that was in their minds. 
And so therefore it was like a double whammy. You know, uh, we've got someone who's hearing impaired and they want to be a solo percussionist. I don't think so. So really it's anyway, I, I kind of did sort of stand my ground a bit. And so they asked me to return to London um, to do another unprepared edition. Mm-hmm. So this was all done at the piano keyboard mm-hmm. um, and it was nothing to do with percussion at all. Yeah. Um, and it was all to do with transposition, score reading, figure bass, looking at pieces and, and doing all sorts of things. And immediately after that, they said, you can start in September. Great. And it was interesting because it, it sort of brought all of the, not all, but a lot of the elements that I had kind of grown up with musically, you know, and the kind of teaching that I had, certainly with my percussion teacher, where he didn't see us as percussion players, Mm -hmm. he saw us as sound creators, as musicians. And then the percussion just happened to be the thing that we manipulated. And, uh, and I think that went a long way as regards to how I see music, how I relate to sound. Um, it, it just, it doesn't matter what I'm playing. Yeah. You know, what is the story um, that you're telling through the sound that you, you, you're, you're trying to find through the object that you have in front of you? So um, I think that the, the addition aspects were not, um, kind of suited my my kind of feeling and, and thoughts about music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't there to be the perfect percussion player. I probably may not have got in if that was the case, you know, but I was there to express, yeah. to tell the story of how I felt the music to be, you know. And, um, and, and that's how I've been ever since because a lot of the new music I play, you know, you... It, you can't find on the internet or or in a CD store or anything like that. So it's all had to come from within and then getting it out there. So your interpretation is your journey. It's not somebody else's journey from YouTube. You know, it is your journey and that journey will change. That journey will have bumps, you know, and lumps. And it will have things that you think, oh, crumbs, I'm not quite sure what to do with us yet, mm. but I need performances to find that out, you know. Yes. Um, and that's the beauty of what we do. When uh, I had to take an audition for uh, a music school and it was um, organ and I nearly got, refu- that's the teacher told me after the audition, uh, I was nearly refused because I played too fast and it was too, the, the piece I've played was too happy or it was. It should have been more sad, and I, I just when he told me this, I just thought, okay, fair enough. But I still got accepted. Um, but um, and it's it's not like a really big conservatoire, prestigious. It's just um, a music school from because we moved from one city to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but now I'm thinking, how narrow-minded was this yes. to just not refuse based on your interpretation? And I guess there's, you know, the um, you try to stand back from your music education, your education generally, and maybe the um, the approach to that music school was too classic, and there was we were too exposed to classical music and just reading uh, papers, and with a little bit of interpretation, but um, very little. 
Mm. And so it makes people very rigid with their way of playing music, perceiving music, uh, wanting to listen to some very specific types of music. Mm -hmm. There's um, one episode that's coming soon. Um, it's not being recorded yet, but it's about music psychology uh, with Victoria Williamson. And she says in her book that we're very... Uh, alerts and to the cultural side of the music so if we're used to playing or listening to a certain type of music we will very be very attached to it um hopefully i'm uh, saying it right but um any other type of music we will not be as attached and may criticize it as well or not not appreciate it as much but the type of music you're familiar to so you know it's it's kind of that um education you need to be able to play and expose to a lot of different types of mu music fortunately there's you can't do it perfectly but at mm. least not just classical music absolutely and i i th i think that's such an important thing of course you know you can lean towards a, a, a type of music that you yeah. feel a particular affinity with and uh, that can change you know over time whatever people want to do um but i think the exposure that young people have music is music mm -hmm. you know it it really is and it often comes from things that have not been notated you know it comes from so many cultural aspects yeah. and and you know there's such great music out in the world that has not been promoted by pr companies or record mm -hmm. companies or anything like that you know it is in a little village somewhere in a remote yeah. place and it's just you know incredible you know or you might see a street musician that is just so intriguing and you think mm -hmm. wow that's so interesting and i think that absolutely if we keep our antennae open uh keep our mind thoughts you know really kind of is 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 open and as clear as can be then you know everything is classical in a way you know everything is valuable yeah. um and so the idea of classical you know in my mind is a period of time mm -hmm. um historically um but for somebody to write a new piece of music for an orchestra or a percussion concerto i don't fit that into the classical mold mm -hmm. you know it's too early to categorize that piece of music yeah. it is simply a piece of music yeah. you know that we're all on this journey including the audience you know as part of that premiere and um and then we need more players to play that piece to you know to to um just allow that piece to to speak and grow and develop and so on so you know we as players are one aspect of that you said you wanted to be very early on you knew you wanted to be a solo percussionist. Uh, why? How, because, <laughs> yes, you know, why? there wasn't any at the time. Well, and, actually... Uh, it's or a, maybe there was. It's an interesting question because um, at school, at secondary school, I and my fellow musical uh, colleagues, percussion players, were all given a chance to play little solos in the school concerts. And uh, or in the community concerts and so on. So it was perfectly normal for us to play little things on the xylophone. That's what we had at school. We mm -hmm. didn't have marimbas or vibraphones and things. And um, and it was wonderful and it felt so normal. And I loved playing in front of the audience. Um, I loved how, you know, it was just something a little bit different uh, to what they normally saw. Um, but it was also the the feeling of being able to express, 
mm-hmm. you know. Um, because ultimately, you know, I was the same as the violinists and the, the pianists and the cellists and the trumpet players. We were all musicians. And, and I really liked that. I just loved the feeling of standing up and playing. Percussion was the focus. And that felt very right to me. Um, and I also enjoyed the exploration of repertoire. And of course, there was no solo percussion repertoire that we found in the northeast of Scotland. So you're delving into piano works and traditional music and violin and flute pieces and so on and seeing if they would work on your tiddly little xylophone. And um, and so that was all interesting. Um, and yeah, it just somehow felt right. You know, I, I can't really say any more than that. What's your approach to you? education generally and music education um there's obviously we need to this it's really important to enjoy playing music to carry on if we don't enjoy playing an instrument there's no point doing it um and we won't be motivated to work hard um well that that's my view but um at, at what at one what point do you to get the enjoyment on the side and say, right, you need to work on the basics there? Or do you get just the child, to, or not necessarily a child, an adult, to focus on something, to find something they really like, and then they'll, they'll want to work hard on it, or maybe not, they will just try to enjoy simple things and it's perfectly okay. Mm. Because... Um, That's something I'm struggling to put in my mind. My wife is much better at <laughs> making me stand back from that. But yeah, enjoyment is key. And then if you want to do it as a job, there's responsibilities and you have to be dedicated to it because it's really highly competitive. So what's your approach to, to all this? Yes, it's a huge question and yeah. different ways suit different people yeah. um, ultimately. But... I think that um, the the sense of curiosity, I keep saying that, but is so incredibly important. Yeah. And I feel that the balance, we, we know that whatever profession or whatever you are learning at that time, whether you're eight years old, 28 or 88, it doesn't matter. There's going to be hard work there. Mm. So that has to just be an acceptance thing. Yeah. There will be work that has to, to go along with what you're trying to learn or develop. And um, and there's no point in trying to fight that. Um, but what is important, I feel, is um, finding a way to bring improvisation um, and thinking outside of the box a little bit in how things are approached. So when we're asked to practice our scales, mm-hmm. What are we trying to do? You know, so what are we trying to achieve when we're asked to practice scales? And scales, what are scales? You know, so we talk about C major or B major or D minor or whatever it might be. But what are they actually expressively? What are scales? You know, and then what can we do to as far as improvisation with those scales mm-hmm. that suddenly builds up a little bit of a story. So you might say to yourself, okay, I've been asked to learn the scale of C major. 
So you go up and down C major. What does that feel like? So finding descriptive words. What would happen if I started C major on a different note, you know, Mm. started it on D or B or A or whatever, you know, how does that make me feel? Physically, how does it make me feel? So thinking about all aspects of of what you do as a musician, you know, so as a percussion player, you know, I might think, okay, well, I've got, you know, I would normally use two limbs to play a scale. Mm -hmm. What would happen if I just did one? What would happen if I used my weaker hand in order to build strength there? What would happen if I used one hand for all the black notes and the other for all the white notes? What would happen if I mixed that up? What would happen if I did it in paradiddles? What would happen if I included a bass drum and a hi-hat here and I played the, the scale of C major? Yeah. You know, does it become suddenly all lumpy because I've got two extra limbs now to think about? So it's finding ways to spice things up. And this will lead you into being more comfortable with improvisation. Mm. But it also affects your listening, you know, and it, that affects the balance, your physical balance with your body as well. And it's just kind of fun too. And so that if you do a boo-boo, you know, it's no longer a boo-boo. You know how to how to get around that, you mm-hmm. know, um, because you're comfortable in making sure that body is all working together. Yep. So you're not reliant on your stronger hand because you're no, you know that your other hand is as strong as your weaker hand. Um, you know that your listening is really, you know, completely elastic. Um, And you know that you're bringing the emotion of what you do into play. And ultimately, that is the most important thing. So why is it that C major is a very friendly-like key? You know, what is it about it that makes us feel like that? You know, it's a happy kind of key. Why is A minor a more sort of lonely, not threatening, but it's just a lonely, sad key? Mm. You know, why is D flat major just like eating dark chocolate? You know, what is it about that? And for us to take time to listen to that, you know, and when we bring the listening in, suddenly the physical aspects actually become secondary, you know, and we find that crumbs, I've just played that D flat major and it was absolutely lovely, you know, as opposed to correct. So it's thinking about the language we use as well um, when we're discussing things like dynamics. What is loud? What is soft? What is MF? What is MP? What does that mean Mm -hmm. in this room? What does it mean in an outdoor venue? What does it mean, you know, in your kitchen? What does it mean in your classroom? What does it mean in your teaching room? And so on and so forth. And and really feeling the differences of playing loud in these different kinds of settings, these different acoustics, you know, how does that affect you physically? How does it affect your your giving of that sound? So there's so many things to think about, but we often approach it from this one angle, scales are learnt first of all, or whatever it might be, you know. So why isn't improvisation in in our exams? Why isn't improvisation in the auditions? You know, it could tell an awful lot about a person. You know, so somebody, I mean, imagine if John Cage was auditioning and he decided to sit still for four minutes, 33 seconds. We'd think, we'd, you know, we'd put him off in a white, you know, mm. jacket or something and yeah. and and he wouldn't belong into a, a music institution. But here we are, you know, so many years later and it's probably one of the most talked about pieces of music ever. But do you see what I mean? It, yeah. it's, I just think it's so interesting when we can really 
I guess, zoom out of a situation and what is it that we do as musicians when we play? It isn't just play our instruments well. What does that mean? You know, because that's changing from day to day. Mm. Um, It's about that story, that expressiveness. What does it mean to that person? How does it get projected? And I think that's the, the issue when we're dealing with so many audiences nowadays. We're dealing with the digital audience. We're dealing with the audience in that space. Mm-hmm. So you have two very different scenarios there. Who are we performing to? Yep. You know, are we performing to the microphone? You know, um, are we you know, often microphones and video cameras are almost like an extension to our instruments nowadays, yeah. you know. But psychologically, that can change your headspace. Um, so what is it? Am I playing to this or am I playing to Joe and Beryl in the audience, you know? so. Do you think we can do without scales? We could learn an instrument well and excel in an instrument without scales. I never had to do scales with organ. I only started scales, doing scales when um, I was doing percussions, especially for marimba. And then you've got, like, it's not called scales, it's called um, rudiments. Rudiments. Uh, yeah, um, in, in percussions. Mm. Uh, so it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I, I guess the benefits from my perspective from having scales was to perfect the technique because you can obviously play fast or play slow or play um, pianissimo or fortissimo. Um, But also something I wasn't expecting is you learn the notes you can play for a certain tonality if you after that you need to improvise. And doing that for the marimba was really helpful for playing keyboard and piano. Uh, so I knew which, like, you know, more a bit more naturally or it's instinctive to just, if you play or want to improvise in a certain certain key, you know which notes will go well together. Mm-hmm. That's my small Yes, view. absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember um, when we were learning the xylophone at school. Mm-hmm. So this was before seeing a marimba or anything. And my teacher would have taken uh, a bit of Bach, for example. He would have yeah. taken anything, but he he might have just taken the first phrase mm-hmm. um, or the first few bars or whatever made sense. And so he would say to us, you know, what key is that in? Mm-hmm. So you would say whatever key it was in. Yeah. What does that feel like? You know, what does a G major feel like? So he wasn't telling you what you think you should be feeling, but what do you feel yeah. that to you? What does that feel like? And uh, so immediately you're building up a story and then you'd look at the phrase, you know, and so you that's a form of sight reading, you know, just looking at it and uh, just seeing the kind of general shape. And then you'd look at the, the rhythm of that. So if it was a bit uh, like a Bach partita, so just goes on and on and on and on like that. However, it doesn't feel monotonous, you know, when it's got pitch there and when there's a key signature, a key signature there. But if you isolate the rhythm, then it's very monotonous. So what is it that makes it suddenly come alive. And so that's why he took something like that and said, now play that phrase on the snare drum. So we wouldn't have just gone. We, 
and all the different kind of sound colours. So, you know, doing funny things with, with our arm angles or how the sticks were playing or popped on that drum or whatever it might be. And so much of that, you know, you would have been told, no, no, you can't hold your sticks like this, you know, or you, you can't have, them, have your finger on top of the sticks and things like that being a no-go. But for expression, anything is possible, mm. you know. And that's what I think was so fascinating um, that allowed all these doors to open. It was, um, you were given permission, I suppose, in your own mind to um, explore that. And and so I, I guess, you know, his teaching of coming at these things from a sound creator yeah. point of view was absolutely key. Can we talk a little bit about your, uh, well, like your hearing uh, impairment mm -hmm. um, when first of all can you can you explain what profoundly deaf means because I I read your essay hearing essay online and um, there's there's a bit of a misunderstanding of what it is exactly So, um, yeah, can you can yeah, you explain? Profoundly it? deaf means that you've still got some residual hearing. Um, so for me, I can hear a lot of impacts of sound. Mm -hmm. So if I come down on a drum yeah. with a stick, I, I will get that impact. What I don't get through the ear is the resonance. Yeah. So if I play a pitch on the marimba or something, mm -hmm. I won't get the pitch, so I won't be able to say that's a C or that's a B flat, yeah. I will be able to say, ah, that's in the middle register or in the low register or in the high register. But the pitches are not coming over as pitches as such. So it's very important then for the eye to to be part of the hearing process uh, in order to see what you're actually striking. Yeah. So the ear won't be enough to pick that up. Yeah. What you also don't get, I I don't get through the ear, is the resonance of the sound. And this is why the body is so important mm -hmm. to come into play, so that the body actually picks up from the impact, resonance, impact, resonance. Now, yeah. obviously, the impact you're also feeling through the body. But if the dynamic is, is low, you're not going to pick that up through the ear. So, for example, in my case, strings are very difficult to hear. They're just really hard to hear. And sometimes you just don't hear anything. Um, and sometimes you will. It depends on, on the impact of the dynamic level. Sorry, about strings. Um Is it on stage or generally? That can vary because if it's on stage, yeah. and that's this is most of the time when mm -hmm. I experience music, so I don't listen to music that often. Okay. Um, and besides, you can control, you yeah. know, the volume. But even with that, you're not necessarily able to have the visual aid to see, ah, the violins are really playing loud mm -hmm. there. I think with a live situation, you can see what's going on okay. and that's really important. So a lot of times when I position my percussion uh, on stage, it's at a 90 degree angle to the audience yeah. so that you can see about three quarters of the orchestra okay. and they can see you as well and that's really important so if you're preparing a stroke on something they you're almost like a conductor they can mm. see you know what you're about to do and it's the same with me and them so i can see you know yeah. whether that's a rich sound whether it's a deep sound i mean deep as in the depth of sound as opposed to register um or i can see if they're you know up in the 
up in heaven or something, not necessarily in register, but just in that sense of touch. So that's really important. Um, so it's a whole mixture. If a, if an orchestra is playing all together, tutti, basically, it's not you're not able to to pick out what the clarinets are doing mm. in relation to the brass because it's this one hoop of sound yeah. and one kind of feeling, general feeling. So you're not able to distinguish what's what. But because you've learned that piece from the full score, you know already who is playing where. Yeah. So you know already that, okay, the four bars before I come in, the trumpets are playing. Mm-hmm. So you can hear the trumpets. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you're expecting them. If you're not expecting them, it'll be too late. Yeah. So by the time you've clocked it's the trumpets that are playing, they've been and gone. Yeah. By the time you've clocked the cellos are playing, they've been and gone. Mm-hmm. So you'll only pick up that more if you're actually looking at the orchestra from an audience point of view. Yeah. So it's it's quite complicated because there isn't a way where you hear the same the same piece if it's on radio, on YouTube, coming through an MP3 player or being played live. They will be completely different experiences, very different experiences. The reason why I asked you on the stage or not is because um, sometimes the flow can transmit a lot of vibration. Oh, heavens, yeah. And uh, depending on this construction, whether it's raised floor or it's uh, like mm. floor on concrete. Mm. Um, and I know you you play bare feet. Mm. Often. So I guess, well, the violins are a bit hard to to hear, as you said. Maybe the cellos could be easier and the basses could be easier to Much. perceive, depending on, and I presume you can feel them with your... Much easier. From it's, the legs... It, Absolutely. The, the the low instruments are my kind of favourite, as it were, because mm-hmm. and often I will set my things up on the cello side, if yeah. possible. It's not always possible. Sometimes you have to use both sides of the conductor. Um, but if possible, I'll put most of the mallet stuff yeah. on the cello side. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> How do you perceive the acoustics of venues and rooms, do you perceive it at all and feel it? Yes, it, and it's hard to describe, but yes, you do perceive it, but it's based on what you, kind of just this feeling, mm-hmm. first of all. So you walk into a space and immediately I'll look at the materials. Mm-hmm. So how a place is, is set out. So yeah. is there a lot of curtains or drapes or um, the depth of the stage, size of the stage, um, just all sorts of things. It's the audience raked, are they flat? Is there a lot of wood? Is there a lot of concrete? That kind of thing. Yeah. So you get the basics of what the acoustics could be Um, But ultimately, I don't think any musician is fully in control of acoustics. I really don't. I think everybody has an opinion on acoustics. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, because I'm dealing with so many instruments that have different frequencies, different lengths, durations, different attacks, different dynamics, um, you know, a triangle and a bass drum. Yeah. 
a, a, a timpani and a tom-tom, you know, in a dry acoustic as opposed to a wet acoustic are two different scenarios. And therefore, how you're going to deal with the dynamics, the type of mallets you're going to use and so on, will change. And you'll often need somebody out there in the space to let you know actually what is happening. Mm-hmm. So because I quite like to play incredibly softly, I can hear my soft playing because I'm doing it, you know what I mean? So I'm perceiving that. Yep. And so therefore, I think it's it's there, it's present. Um, but somebody out there might say, oh, we can't hear anything. You've got to play louder, you know. Well, I then have to decide how much do I want the audience to use their other senses to perceive the dynamic. So to really bring the body language in and to use the sense of sight to perceive something is moving there mm-hmm. so is there isn't there you know rather than giving them the dynamic yeah. but that's a choice um but the point is is that because we think of music as being an oral activity in that we need to hear it um do we need to hear it you know and that's the question you know what are the ways can we engage with the body and our other senses in order to hear. So that's what I find really interesting, um, partly because of my own situation, because the body is being used quite a lot and because I'm conscious of, you know, sounds that can be heard, Mm -hmm. sounds that I can make sense of, sounds that I can't hear, sounds that I can hear but cannot make sense of, sounds that I can hear that can be just incredibly painful, um, all of those sort of things. So I then need to redirect them throughout my body in order for them to be, to to make sense for me in order to build that story. Mm -hmm. So I want the audience to also have that option, you know, where they feel that they don't have to just sit there and receive something, that they are very much participants um, of the the journey, really. Is there any instruments you struggle to play? Uh, any other instruments you struggle to play or hear? Well, play. I guess we always, for most instruments, we have contact with them, don't we? Yeah. Absolutely. Percussion is unusual because often we're detached from our instrument. You know, mm-hmm. often it's the mallet or stick yeah. or something. And and so, you know, of course, sometimes we have connection if we're yeah. playing congas or bongos or djembe or whatever it might be. But a lot of times we are detached. So psychologically, you're seeing that stick or, or mallet as an extension of your limb. And and that's important to think about, you know, in, in how you then you know, a- attach that to your limb and, and that connecting point between yeah. letting it go, you know, for the stick to speak and for your hand to speak um, and then for the sound to speak in the space that we're in. Um, so that that I find really interesting. I think the instruments I've, I've struggled with over a long period, but it's it's just sort of taken time and bear in mind with percussion you're often not playing your own instruments Mm -hmm. so you're playing hired instruments or other people's instruments so there's constant kind of getting to know something so and that's unusual with percussion it's it's same with piano of course um often um so but i find that instruments that have high frequencies and that are resonant are really difficult 
to, to know what is going on with them. So glockenspiels, symbols, triangles, tubular bells, those kind of things. So things whereby there's a lot of harmonics, mm-hmm. there's a lot of resonance. It's in a register that is extremely difficult to feel other yep. than up kind of here. But this part, I find, of the body doesn't always give you the emotion. So whereas the lower part, part of my body, I feel, gives me emotion, you know. So up here is is kind of almost overloaded, yep. you know. Um, it's hard to explain. That's interesting because um, for stage acoustics is a is a pretty it's a science that's researched a lot at the moment, and we know that musicians generally prefer uh, high frequency content in the reverberation because they can feel uh, well they can feel the details of all the instruments or and hear them mm-hmm. where that might be uh, masked by. The low frequencies. Which is, I can understand that, um, yes, yes. But, so yeah. that's quite interesting. Yeah. And you say, yeah, uh, in your essay, you say that you perceive the high frequencies, high pitch, more on the uh, on your face. Yes, the upper part. Than, and the lower lower frequencies, you feel them on the, on the yes, uh, lower parts. Yes, absolutely. And as a player, the lower frequencies are the ones that you have time to digest, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a wonderful kind of feeling that it yeah. really is. And I guess this is a difference again between, you know, being the participator of the sound and being on this side of the instrument, yeah. you know, so you're getting the sound coming up, you know, to your face, to your chest, to your tummy, mm-hmm. to where, wherever it might be. Um, for an audience member, they're not getting that immediate contact really but they're getting the visual part yeah and it's always interesting when you have for example um deaf people who might be attending a rehearsal and they're sitting out in the audience and they're looking at everything and they're you know finding it very interesting and then when they have the opportunity to come on stage and be right next to the instrument Mm -hmm. they cannot believe how much more they hear you know, in their ways, you know, whether it's physically, whether it's it's through the ear, whatever it might be, but the the extra dimension by being close to the instrument mm-hmm. is incredible. And it's just a wonderful example always, you know, I feel about the, the kind of complexities of hearing, mm-hmm. the complexities of sound, the complexities of space, yeah. um, the complexities of positioning, um, Positioning with the instruments, positioning of the, the the people, you know, that you're connecting with, the player, you name it, then the type of mallet that's used, yeah. you know, irrespective of dynamics and all sorts of things like that. Um, the materials that are used, you know, there's just so many dimensions to this. And, and you know, if you are asked, well, what do you hear, what you don't hear? That's really difficult to say, you know, yeah, I might hear that. And the next time I may not hear it so well, you know, or, yeah, I can hear a bit of that. And, yeah, I hear that well. No, you know what I mean? It isn't just black and white. Um, And I think that this could have an impact on how we discuss music, interpretation, translation, all of the elements with music when we're learning an instrument. You know, when we're learning an instrument, we isolate that instrument and mm-hmm. the player and the type of music. We don't ever talk about the acoustics, do we? When we're learning an instrument? No. You know, I can't remember 
ever having a discussion about acoustics, mm-hmm. you know, in an instrument. But it opened up my world when my teacher said, Evelyn, place your hands on the wall. Can you feel that timpani? Yeah. And then the intervals of the timpani. And then as it got closer and closer, that was the beginning of thinking, whoa, there's something extra to sound that I need to be paying attention to mm. and made me much more, more aware, not necessarily being able to control acoustics, not at all, but being aware of what acoustics can do and yeah. how we need to let the room speak. Emma, your PR uh, earlier said, you're so good at lip reading that <laughs> you can, uh, you know when there's people who speak with accents and even the French accent. On the whole, yes, yes. I, I, and I can see that you're, yep. um, when I'm talking, you're looking to see my lips as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of face reading, really. Okay. Um, but you can pick up accents. I'm not saying every accent. No. You know, it's taken me a long time to begin to distinguish a generic American accent and a yeah. generic Canadian accent. Okay. And it's only because certain words that Canadians say are quite similar to Scottish words. Okay. So an example is about. Yeah. Now an American might delay or or elongate rather certain words about and the yeah. mouth is quite open. Right. And with Canadians is this generally yeah, 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 just obviously. to be clear is more about about so mm-hmm. it's more closed. And it's little things like that, same with Australia, New Zealand. I've now, or I'm beginning to pick up the difference between the two. Otherwise, they were just kind of, oh, and very much back in the in the mouth and back in the throat yeah. and quite difficult to, to lip read. Um, but now I'm getting used to that. Um, How I about can't, French, the French accent? How, well, I, how can I, you I, tell? there's a tinge, you know, which is very lovely. And... And yes, that can be quite closed, actually, with with the mouth okay. in general. Um, I find that um, often people from Glasgow with a strong Glaswegian accent, mm-hmm. that can be quite difficult because of the speed. Um, yeah. Really just, woof, that's very, very fast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you begin to pick things up. Yeah. I'm very interested in deliberate practice. In? Deliberate Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm wondering whether you can be a professional musician. Uh, you don't need talent, um, and by just deliberating, deliberately practicing. What's your What's your view on this? And if you have a young musician who's passionate about music, doesn't feel that he or she is talented. Uh, do you think that would you still encourage that person to pursue a career uh, by just practicing? Because we'll, we can reach really high levels by practicing. What's your view on this? I'm really interested because there's so, you know, you put a lot of people in boxes because they are either talented or not talented. Mm-hmm. And we never, we don't appreciate that our life is really long. And by just practicing because we love it, we can reach a really high level that make can make us uh, make a living. Yeah, absolutely. That's my view. But yes, yes, indeed. And again, it's sort of isolating one aspect of music, mm-hmm. and it's thinking, well, what 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 is a musician? What is the job of yeah. a musician? First of all, you know, and there are so many avenues to be a musician yeah. that can 
absolutely affect lives you know that mm-hmm. can really have a huge impact on lives and uh, to the people that you're giving the music to mm-hmm. and um if somebody enjoys practicing let them practice you know and and the point is is that you have to be able to um zoom out of your own situation and be your own teacher yeah. and to know you know what you're progressing with and uh, how you want to progress and so on um if you're practicing and not progressing yeah. um but you're still enjoying practicing there obviously has to be levels of of playing um but if you feel that you're practicing and you you're, you still want to be a musician but you're not getting very far then accept the fact that by all means try and be a musician but don't be disappointed if things don't quite go your way you know simple as that really mm. um but it it is highly competitive but ultimately it's a profession that can really create such differences in people's lives if you think for example the olympic opening ceremony of london 2012 yeah. you had uh, about 1000 drummers there 99.9% of them were volunteers who had never picked up pair of sticks before um and they were led by you know um experienced students and professionals and so on to to get them all together and um now the impact of that was enormous was incredible yeah. it impacted so many of us not just us participating but for many people who were watching that this sheer unbelievable percussive expression of the industrial revolution that was the story the industrial revolution you know and then this kind of physical thing of seeing a thousand people come crunch you know on these buckets you know and various drums and things was incredible so if we all got that impact perfectly together it wouldn't have had the same impact yeah. it was this dirty smelly greasy oily hard sound that we were after so this imperfect crunch was what we needed and it was kind of poof i feel that you know yeah. i am in this industrial revolution i am physically i am one of the people creating the five rings you know creating something metallic and so on and and it was incredible um what did, what was your involvement what was your were so you leading this i was leading the 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 drummers on this okay and it, you know it was an extraordinary situation whereby then after that event many of the participants carry on carried on with their drumming mm-hmm. you know because it was a great sense of feeling and therapy and all sorts of things they created friendships from that they created groups from that you know that then fed into their communities and and all sorts of things happened with that from people who had not picked up sticks before mm-hmm. so it was a great example where the story led the way that yep. was a journey it wasn't about getting of course people had to learn a rhythm and they had to you know kind of play it vaguely right you know yep. but ultimately it was the story that led this yeah and that's so it wasn't now you must go home and practice eight hours a day playing single strokes and that type of thing it would never have worked you know if somebody wanted to do that fine that's great and so there's no right or wrong but again it's coming back to the story you know what is the story of that bach partita 
on a snare drum. Yeah, what is that story? And the story is all of these colours and, and, you know, and you're not going to get that from a method book or study yeah, book. No. Um, so, yeah, I feel very passionate about that. We reaching the last questions. Um, I usually ask questions about venues. Um, can you give me your five most memorable venues or the, the five venues you, you really like playing in? And for, for different reasons. Oh, my goodness. Um, hard to pick five. I think some of the more unusual ones... I mean, somewhere like the Royal Albert Hall is interesting. Um, not so much from an acoustic point of view, because mm -hmm. it is quite difficult to play there and to control the sound. Yeah. So to just create a whisper yeah. is sometimes going to be a lost cause. But the grandeur of the space mm -hmm. and how the audience is, is in this circle creates a feeling of real togetherness, of whereby you are literally experiencing this music or whatever is happening together mm -hmm. rather than walk on stage, you feel quite isolated and by the way, the audience is there. So that's quite special, you know, from that point of view and the fact that you can get a lot of people in that space and they're often incredibly good listeners there. Yeah. They can see every member of the audience, more or less, you know what I mean? You can see and you really feel this togetherness. So I think that's a special venue. Um, I remember playing at the Hollywood Bowl many years ago. And so in a situation like that, I can't remember now how many people it, it holds, but thousands and thousands. And you're then very much reliant on the technical team to take care of your sound, yeah. basically. And that's interesting as well. So any kind of outdoor venue, you know that your dynamic levels will all have to come up. The physical aspects of playing will have to change and be more dynamic um, and so on. And then basically your sound is taken care of yeah. by the technical crew there. So you can only control what you can control in, in that aspect. Um, and you have to see the technical team as part of the performance, you yeah. know, and, and, and this is real teamwork that comes into play. Um, I love playing it uh, in a lot of the Japanese halls. I realise I'm not just picking and naming, you know, one yeah. or the other. Yeah, yeah. Don't uh, worry. A lot of the Japanese halls are incredibly consistent Um, so in Japanese hall, you mean uh, the, the stage is at roughly the center, and the audience can be all around, which we call vineyards. Is that no, is that correct? No, I, I simply mean a lot of the halls in Japan. Oh, in Japan, are, okay. Yes, are are very um, kind of clean, often rectangular, yeah. um, unfussy. Okay. Uh, very good acoustics, um, and you can. In, in many cases, really just play how you feel. Yeah. You know, um, even in school halls there, they can be really tremendous halls, actually. Um, I like to... Uh, I've enjoyed playing in places like the... the um, I, I've forgotten the name of the, the actual hall but in Dallas where the Dallas Symphony Orchestra play okay. and likewise where the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra play really beautiful halls there okay I'm trying to find um, the names of yes I can't remember the name now um, uh, 
Yes, I, I mean, there's, there's, and I remember playing in in interesting places like a tomb mm. in Palestine, um, which was quite quite extraordinary, actually. Um, again, very intimate. Um, yes, it's difficult to just pick favourite halls because, again, it's one of those things, certainly with percussion, where, as I say, you're dealing with a myriad of instruments and some work really well and some less well, but also the type of music that's played, um, you know, the type of combinations of instruments and all yep. sorts of things. So it's difficult to just say a hall can cope with absolutely everything. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm usually quite hesitant to say that's your perfect hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I completely agree. There's, um, yeah, different halls are made for different types of music and also different taste of listeners as well. Absolutely, but, um, absolutely. The the Royal, I can't remember exactly the volume of the Royal Albert, Albert Hall, but there's a certain volume, like a range of volume that is ideal for um, acoustic music. Mm. And it's around, roughly around 10 uh, cubic meters per uh, uh, seat. But the Royal Albert Hall is way over this. Mm. And hence, so it's a big volume that um, you really need to play really loudly to yes. make it resonate correctly. Uh, yes. I'm trying to speak in layman's terms. And uh, therefore, it's really hard to hear like pianissimo, very soft and yes. quiet um um, sections yes because the volume is too big and it kind of absorbs absolutely um, and then there's always the the kind of challenge that um certainly with uh percussion is that it, it, what the, the kind of volume of what's happening on stage mm -hmm. that is suitable for musicians yeah um and of course this is a whole other topic you know um about um hearing levels and uh, yeah. hearing protection and, and yes. the materials used, the kind of earplugs and, and all sorts of ear protection and so on. So that that's a whole other thing because often what you feel inside of yourself and what you want to express, I, I find that, you know, as a musician, I want to express any dynamic possible that yeah. I physically can produce and that I kind of in my mind mentally think about. That's what I want to be able to do. Um, so if I want to bring that, ceiling down I want to feel I can do that if I want people to think is she doing anything I want people to feel that um, and but of course that's not always possible to do on stage because mm. it could be that if you want to go rattling on temple blocks that you know the poor cellos or violins or the the rest of the orchestra are just going to say whoa that's just yeah. too much you know so what you sometimes want to do is not always allowed uh, to happen for, you know, reasons I understand. Um, so therefore that will affect then what goes out yeah. into the hall. So there's all sorts of issues really, I think, that are interesting. And then of course, what does somebody receive digitally from that dynamic? You know, that's a whole thing again. So that'll be a different experience. Is there any places, I won't say hall because you mentioned the Hollywood Bowl, which is not a, a hall. Uh, no. Any places that you haven't been or you haven't performed yet and you would like to perform? I don't uh, think there's that many. 
Yes, well, actually, we have a map downstairs. And although I've been to many, many places, there are many territories I have not been. Mm -hmm. So there are large swathes of Russia I have not been. So although I've been to Russia many, many times, um, it's only been to Moscow and St. Petersburg. Okay. Um, So there's a great deal of that country, um, a great deal of Siberia, of course, you know, I haven't been to. There's a great deal of South America I haven't been to. So although I've been there a lot, there's, it's only been to certain places. Brazil, I've been so many times to and, and, and other places, Venezuela and Colombia and so on. But there's a lot of territories I've not been to. Um, uh, America has been uh, covered a lot. There's a lot of Central America I have been to, only to mm-hmm. Mexico. Um, How about Asia? There seems to be Asia have been, been to lots. a lot. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But again, there's a lot of places in mainland China I have not been to. You know, again, it's just your key cities yeah, yeah. really and uh africa i've although i've um uh climbed kilimanjaro i've not actually performed in africa mm-hmm. so that's a whole continent yeah, yeah. you know um there's a lot of the middle east that i've not performed in again just key places that i've been to um a lot of the places now it, there are f- several places now in the world that we wouldn't want to go to at this time. And that's really sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel very grateful to have had the experience of being in those places that unfortunately would not be areas that are um, wise to go to at this point. Um, So, so yes, there's lots of, lots of the Middle East and lots of other territories that I'd love to go to Mm -hmm. um, that hopefully one day, but you know, there, I find that I'm not as anxious to go to to certain or to travel in quite the same way as I used to. And part of that is because of of how travel is. Um, And part of it obviously is where my focus is right now. Um, And also- Where is your focus at the moment? Pardon? Where, what are you focusing on at the moment? It's really the foundation and collection. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm still focusing on the playing and, yes. and commissioning, but it's not to that kind of degree where um, it, it's now, you know, the aim was to cr- create and sustain a career as a solo percussionist so that the next generation could come through mm-hmm. and say, I want to be a soloist and there's a repertoire to, to keep me going here. Yeah. And that's been really important. And... So I don't feel that there's the same kind of feeling where I've got to keep commissioning. I've got to keep, you know, kind of promoting percussion in front of the orchestra or in a recital. And um, and so that's allowed me to free up some of my time to really concentrate on the foundation whose mission is to, to teach the world to listen. And the foundation is interesting because it's not a music foundation because teach the world to listen, listen, it affects all of us in any kind of industry. Yeah. And, and it's often the listening aspect that is the thing that glues us together. Um, and so how the foundation engages with different industries like sport, like entertainment or music, like education, mm-hmm. socially, business and so on um, is is that's what I'm kind of really interested and, and curious about. Yep. Um, so 
so yes, a lot of my focus is on that. Is that why you, uh, we need to finish, uh, but probably the last question, is that why you created your podcast? As no, part of that focus or is it's another project? Well, the podcast happened before the pandemic, yeah. actually. And so it was something that I was interested in doing. I was interested in speaking with, it was partly to do with with listening because I wanted to find out, you know, from different types of people in different industries, you know, what does listening mean to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't formed the foundation at that point. Yeah. It had been bubbling in my mind, but the podcast wasn't hinged on that, really. Yes. Um, but then, of course, the pandemic happened, so they, uh, all of the, the, the majority of the podcasts became um, uh, things that we did digitally um, as opposed to face-to-face. And uh, and then when we got out of the pandemic and started working again, I just found I didn't have time to continue with the podcast. So that's why we've we've um, uh, stalled on those. Um, I'm quite close the door on them. I'm still keeping an open mind, maybe in relation to the foundation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, you know, get other things in place. And but I just find it very interesting talking to a vet, for example, about listening, because yeah. uh, it isn't just the animal that they're listening to; it's the owner as well. They're listening to technology. They're listening to new methods uh, of technology or or new ways of um, creating a, an operation, doing surgery, you name it. Um, or you know, t- talking to the likes of Bill Bailey about listening as a comedian, you know, and fascinating and all sorts of different kinds of people sports people and and um and you just find that actually the same things come through in any profession you know it starts from within Mm -hmm. it really does how are you listening to yourself what are you saying to yourself you know um what gets you going there and then how does that how is that bridge listening bridge almost built you know to what you're then engaging with so if it's a new piece of music it's so easy for us musicians to say oh i like that or oh no i really don't like that piece and then we kind of think well it's badly written or or it's a badly composed or badly this badly that but actually we haven't given ourselves the chance to just listen and that means looking at it listening leaving it looking again leaving it looking again just bit by bit it goes back to that thing again you know like a bit of lego when you put another bit together another bit and then suddenly ooh, you've got Mm. some kind of interesting object there so listening takes time it really does and I think the world we live in at the moment is just so reactive. It's, we've got to have everything now. We've got to, you know, feel it now. We've got to have it now. We've yep. got to uh, be able to do something now. You know, everything is now, 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 now. And although it's great to live in the present, that doesn't mean that we just have to expect everything to happen now. Yeah. And and it, it's that journey. It goes back to what Steve Davis said about the snooker thing, you know, Yes, the aim is to get the ball in that pot, mm. but feeling the arm, feeling that working so well, you know, feeling the cue, you know, feeling that action, and that oh, by the way, the ball happens to go in the pot. It, it's it's a wonderful thing. So, and that's a form of listening. Yeah, you know, it really is. Well, um, yeah, thank you very much, Evelyn. Um, it's been really oh, nice. Very welcome. That's thank you. The, one of the reasons that. Um, High Point podcast was created was to meet people like you they, um, and you know I get out of my little cocoon and 
meet loads of different people who've got different perspectives mm. view of life so uh, as well as um, visiting venues so thank you very much for accepting that invita invitation or having me here you're very uh, welcome thank you Mark thank you Evelyn